Welcome to The Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm Roger Woodall, founder of the Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sport and music festival. With all events in 2020 grinding to a halt, I'll be bringing people back together, but in a different way. Today I'm talking to a proper festival man, Sam Bush. Sam has gone from being an early reality TV star to working on some of the most successful festivals in the world. Working with the likes of AEG and Live Nation, he has massive amounts of experience and knowledge of the festival industry. We chat about the best festival experiences, including Coachella, Isla White, Wilderness, Boardmasters, Reading and Leeds, and the time I booked him for a personal appearance at one of my nightclubs back in the day. If you want more like this, do us a favor and press the subscribe button. Here he is, the man himself, Mr. Sam Bush. Sam, good to see you, mate. How you doing? Yeah, very good, mate. Very good. How's Norway? Good. Norway is good. It's sunny, it's hot, and it's a kind of Scandinavian summer, so I can't complain. Wow, fair play, mate. Fair play. Mate, we'll get this let's just get cracking straight into it. Um you've had you've had some you've had some life for a sort of thirty year old thirty year old lad starting from, you know, your dad being one of the biggest promoters in the world back in the seventies and eighties. What was it like growing up? in those times of your dad uh, managing Elton John and David Bowie and Queen etc it was it was amazing uh obviously a lot of those are a little bit before my time um but yeah no growing up uh in that world I think from as early as I can remember I lived and breathed it you know I'd go to a concert and that that feeling of uh you know the lights coming up the act coming on stage and seeing the full crowd was just something that is in your blood, I think, uh, for all of us promoters. Um, and I was very fortunate and lucky enough to to have that around me and be able to go to shows and, you know, go backstage and see how it all works. And, you know, I was keen from a young age to do that. And I knew even at school, um, you know, I wasn't the most academic at school. I'm pretty heavily dyslexic as well um, and always struggled a little bit, but I always knew what I wanted to do. Um, and I, yeah, was fortunate in that sense. And also, uh, I went to uni for a brief spell. I think I've probably got the record for the shortest spell. I went for six weeks to uh, Oxford Brooks Uni. Um, that's the part. That's the party uni, isn't it? Not the real one. I think I actually <laughs> remember in bat, and I'll admit this. And I remember a few of us mates who weren't having the best uh, times said, "Oh, where should we go? Oh, yeah, Oxford Brooks. We'd read in Nuts or Zoo or something that that was like the party <laughs> university to go to. So that's off where we went. I lasted six weeks and then decided that." I wanted to just get out, work and get experience in life. Uh, that's what I wanted to do. And and I remember driving home and I called my sister and I said, uh, I was driving back to Oxford. and I said to her, I don't want to go back. I said, if I go back now, I've always stuck through with things. And if I take a right, I'll come back to Bournemouth. And, I, and she said, well, look, and I was worried about telling my parents. And, uh, you know, so six weeks in, it's pretty embarrassing that you want to leave straight basically after Freshers Week. Um, so I stayed with my sister for a couple of weeks and made the best decision I ever made. Yeah, amazing, mate. Amazing. So how old were you, how old were you then when you decided you wanted to get, you know, full on into the events world? I, well, I mean, I always knew I wanted to be a promoter from as early as I can ever thought about what I wanted to do for work. Um, you know, I would, every holiday I'd go and work on dad's tours and help sell merchandise and work as a runner backstage, go to the supermarkets in the morning to get all the crew, the food, all that sort of stuff. And I actually did, as soon as I left uni, I basically went on the road straight away. So I went selling merchandise for 
all sorts of artists, Billy Connolly, David Essex, and you know, all that all around the country doing 50 day tours in 60 days and not sleeping much, but it was a great apprenticeship. And then I went on to tour managing artists as well from there. Um, but yeah, I'd say like 18, 19 was when I properly sort of rolled my sleeves up and went, right, let's go. Yeah. 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 Unbelievable. What was the, um, what was the next step for you then on being employed? Did you, did your old man employ you or did you go straight into work for a company or did you put on your own gigs? What was, what was the next step? At that stage, I've never actually been employed by my dad. Uh, I always set up my own little company. So I was just a sole trader, freelance, tour managing, you know, working on my own, doing my own little tax returns even from when I left. Um, so I was never, I was never employed at that stage. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was just a question of finding tours to work on. I was tour managing artists at the time. We were big, like Sonic and people like that and just traveling around the world with them, which was good fun, but it opened my eyes to then the other side of the industry, which was management. And so I was kind of managing some baby bands and then promoting my own gigs in, in Bournemouth and, you know, doing club nights. Some of them worked, some of them didn't work. There was five <laughs> people at some of them I remember and I was having to beg people to come in. I had more yeah. flies than God knows. Um, but um, yeah, I think, uh, and then kind of 19, I remember I was in Blackpool uh, and it was before kind of Wi-Fi era and I was so bored and I was doing like a six week stint on a on this show called Boogie Nights uh, with Scott and a few other people from Five and whatever. And I was so bored living in this horrible little flat and uh, on this internet cafe and this little advert popped up, which is actually where I met you. Uh, and I, it was a, Thing, wanting to take a bunch of kids to an island and you know ex- exploring stuff um and the reason why i mentioned that was because it was quite a big moment actually so i ended up getting on a uh, this tv show called shipwrecked which at the time was a pilot and spent five months out there and that was a really time where i was able to think for five months how am i going to achieve what i want to achieve and uh how do i get there and start promoting big concerts and big festivals and Obviously, amazing experience, met some wicked people along the way, including yourself. Um, and then off, off the back of that, uh, I really um, used that opportunity to go, okay, well, how do I get some quick money in? Because any business, you need cash. And I thought, how do I get cash quickly so that I can start doing my own concerts to a bigger level? So I started representing a whole bunch of reality TV stars so that it was able to fund what I really wanted to do, which was, um, which was doing my own concerts. Yeah. Um, So that was kind of like just after then was when I really kind of ramped everything up. It was uh, interesting times, but fun as well. I remember uh, booking you. We didn't know each other back then. Must have been like 20 years ago, is it? And I couldn't think think of what programme it was. I was saying this morning, was it Love Island or was it one of those programmes? But it's actually shipwrecked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I actually remember the first time I met you, it was in Portsmouth. That's right. That's right. Outside a club in Portsmouth, wasn't it? It's like Jumping Jacks or something like that. Yeah, can't I can't remember the name of the club. Yeah. yeah. I can't remember. What did I pay for you in the end? Can you remember? Four or five hundred quid plus a hotel yeah, exactly. and was. evening right. meal and a, and a few, few drinks. drinks. Mate, fantastic. So your 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 route from there really has been has sped up very, very quickly. You know, I've been watching you and been stayed in touch over the years and and obviously being a Bournemouth lad yourself, but you're working on a world world level with some of the companies you work for and i think your first company was aeg is that right yeah so just the kind of bit in between that was quite interesting so i started promoting my own shows but what really catalyzed everything was i i found a gap where music was a key like for me music was a kind of key marketing strategy tool for brands so i i through artists i was managing with i started managing the early careers of people like ben howard clean bandit 
and a few other artists. And I met a brand called Quicksilver through that. And through them, I started working on major, major shows where they would bring me in to use music as part of their big marketing tool. So I was getting paid a fee to create like dream shows with Tony Hawk on a vert ramp with Maximo Park and all across Europe. And then I worked with the Merlin Entertainment Group off the back of that uh, with a friend of mine, Aaron Kirkhouse, who was a business partner of mine for a long time when we were together. Um, and yeah, we created this brand called Auto Towers Live, which was a big multi-pop act with all the big acts of their time. So you had JLS, McFly, Little Mix, and all of those kind of acts, Rita Ora. Uh, and then we did the Black Eyed Peas at Alton Towers. So it was like a thinking outside the box. We just did a theme park ticket for the day and that included a concert at the end of the day. And we were selling 25, 30,000 tickets Love really it. quickly. Love so it. that was then suddenly that gave us the rush of like, yeah. you know, you've gone from doing small shows to medium shows to suddenly massive, massive shows. And that buzz is something that, you know, I live for every day. And then that was the kind of catalyst to then allow me to to move to AEG. There was a gentleman running it at the time uh, who's a good friend of mine called Rob Hallett. Uh, he was running AEG across Europe and he approached me. He actually used to, funny enough, uh, work with my dad back in the day on a few acts. And he just said, look, see what you're doing. Do you want to come over? Um, and I'd never wanted to, as an entrepreneur, work for a corporate company. I was kind of like, I want to do my own thing, create my own yeah. products. But then I was like, you know, maybe it's a good experience for me to be part of a big team. And AG at the time were, you know, up there with the biggest and the best globally. And they were doing Rolling Stones and all these amazing acts. So I thought, well, you know, let's go, let's give it a crack. So I went to AG. Uh, I think it was back in 2011. And how old, were, how old were you then when you went to AEG? And what do AEG currently own? So AEG at the moment, uh, it's AEG Live and AEG Venues. So they own venues like the O2 in London. Um, they own a large stake in ticketing companies. They have a ticketing company. They work with British Summertime Festival. Um, they've got Coachella in America. You know, it's a, it's a big, big company. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, some of my closest friends are still there. Um, and yeah, touring wise, they do Bieber and, and those sort of things. So those sort of artists. So yeah, it's a big, big company. And, um, I had three really, really good years there and, and developed my, you know, kind of skills from on a pure promoting level of doing small club shows indoors to doing shows at the O2 to working on the booking team for British summertime when we, um, colleague of mine at the time, Mags, did a comeback gig for the Libertines, which is one of the craziest gigs I've ever been involved with at Hyde Park. Yeah. Sold out instantly 65,000 tickets. And it was, wow. I remember at one stage, we were watching it down from production and people were like just jumping over the barriers because uh, they were so excited to see them back together. And there was all yeah. these different like diamond circles and all of that. Yeah, yeah, and we yeah, went yeah. out to try and like, handle the situation that we were getting our land minutes ripped off us and it was just the most <laughs> I I didn't go to the 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 Oasis Rose Bowl gig but I, I can't it can't have been far off that it was pretty crazy yeah. as, a, as a memory gig um and yeah we stayed there for three years and had three really good years working on festivals and tours and started working across European tours and things and yeah a really really good yeah some of my fondest memories actually were there yeah, I bet I bet what a cracking what a cracking company to work for straight away really to go from an you know, entrepreneurial spirit straight into a, a company have got, you know, these wonderful assets and the O2 and British summertime and they've got tons all around the world, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Coachella, I went, to, I was fortunate enough to go to Coachella like the three years I was there in a row and, you know, you're 
pinching yourself backstage at gigs and you know walking around and the after parties and you know seeing how they do it over there it's 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 an incredible festival Coachella I mean really is incredible from every bit of detail from the branding to the artist experience the customer experience from the moment you walk in you feel a million dollars it's it's amazing it really is is there any is there anything obviously you've done a lot of festivals around the UK is there any anything that compares to in the UK or does it compare to more like Tomorrowland in Europe or does it compare to more like Glastow or British summertime was definitely when I was aging it's obviously still a go and now was, was definitely an attempt to recreate that sort of high-end experience so you could get a cocktail you could get you know you warm n- nothing wrong with Blossom Hill wine but you didn't have to get an eight quid glass of warm bl- Blossom wine Blossom yeah. Hill wine or a warm pint of Tuborg there was yeah. ales there there was all these nice experiences BVIP and so that was that was pretty close. Um, I would say there's there's not a huge amount. Um, there's like small versions, like when I worked on Festival Number no. Six, at another company that was kind of like a boutique version of it, very high end, very customer experience driven. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I wouldn't say there's a huge amount, and across Europe, nothing really compares to it. Wow. So you say are you saying to everyone are you saying to everyone listening here and myself get yourself to Coachella one hundred percent? I would say. As, a, as an experience, yeah, you've got to experience it once. I mean, I haven't been to Burning Man yet, which I hear is an amazing yeah. experience. Yeah, uh, I, I would like to go to that at some point just to tick that box. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely an amazing experience. Yeah. And Paul Tillet and everyone behind it is uh, the story behind it from, you know, the first few years it was, you know, it was losing big, big money. But uh, the team at AEG believed in it. And that just goes to show, you know, things don't make money from the start, especially in this business, as you know, and you've got to stick with brands and, you know, you've got to trust in what you're creating, believe in it and the team around you and just go until you make it work. Uh, And that's, you know, they went from one festival weekend to two weekends. And it's one of the most, you know, one of the biggest names in the world now. I always remember uh, Melvin Ben coming down to Bournemouth Sevens and uh, giving me a a heads up and said... uh, stick to what you're doing here because most music festivals take seven years to break even. And we're obviously a sport music festival. And that was the best learning tip I've ever had. Go back to your, go back. What's the, what's the capacity of the British summertime? 65. It can go up to 65. Yeah. I believe at the time it was three shows at 50 and three at 65 from memory. Wow. So it's a British summertime. Is it five, over five days or six shows? Is it six days? Six shows normally across two weekends. Wow. when we were there, uh, there was like, you know, various people involved in the booking uh, of, of, of the festival. Uh, there was, and now there's a gentleman called Jim King, who's a very well respected and a really great he guy. Uh, he yeah. he uh, he runs the festival, and always ran the festival. But you had various people booking it. Some people had relationships with certain headliners, so they would book it. Um, we, we often, cause obviously I was pretty new at the time. We would book a lot of the undercards underneath them, um, as well, which was amazing experience, but you were always part of the conversations and on emails of all these big yeah. offers. It was, it was great. Yeah. yeah. We had at the time like Rolling Stones, Bon Jovi, the Libertines comeback gig. Yeah. It was just that sort of level of, you know, massive eyes. What what made you what made you take the next step from there then in your events career that you moved on to what did you who did you move on to was it global? Yeah, so at that point uh, it was global entertainment or global media and entertainment group. So global is the biggest commercial radio group uh, in the UK. They own all the radio stations like Capital Heart, XFM, LBC, Classic FM, 
a smooth, you know, it's huge, huge radio group. Um, and, uh, yeah, they, I've been working with them a lot on a lot of the kind of pop festivals. Um, and at the time AG were kind of producing the summertime ball. So we had a kind of relationship with them and they were, they'd set up global entertainment, which was a, uh, yeah, they're kind of armed to create management records, publishing and live. And they wanted me to come in and do a live, uh, department. Uh, from the UK so they had a US operation and a UK operation so when that you know obviously kind of started to surface at the time I had uh, just got married um, you know it was a kind of big change there there were some changes at AEG um, and I just thought you know it was a good time it was a massive career move for me you know to go and kind of create a department and run a department you know, I literally walked in the first day and it was just like there's your desk Crack you know, on. <laughs> just just crack on, you know, and it was like, okay, well, where do you want me to start? Is it festivals, touring? They were just like, we brought you in, just just create it. Uh, and that was an amazing feeling, really. You had this huge company uh, behind you who are super ambitious. You know, they do things the right way. They've always grown their radio brands amazingly. And yeah, I kind of, I went in pretty quickly. And because touring, quite a lot of the touring business in the UK is, a lot of it helps if you've got festivals. So if I can say to an artist, a new artist or an agent, I can, you know, I can work with you and we can develop you over two years. Here's the festival plan for the next two years and I can help you achieve that. That really helps them. And that often helps you get the touring amongst other things. So I was keen. So I straight away identified some festivals and I've become good friends with a chap called Gareth Cooper, uh, who, uh, and Brad, uh, who ran and owns a festival called Festival Number no. 6. And at the time, they were quite far down the line with another promoter um, and I'd identified it. So I was working closely with the COO at the time of, well, still is, of Global. And I said, look, you know, uh, these are characters uh, in the music industry. <laughs> Great guys, but they're characters. Uh, yeah. You know, and I was, well, I was a bit nervous bringing them to the board meeting. And, you know, so we want to invest in this. Here's the business plan. And we did a, a thorough plan. And they had festival number six and snow bombing and a few other uh, events at the time. And they'd just done this massive event with Bacardi, the Bacardi Triangle, uh, out in the Caribbean in Puerto Rico. So they were kind of a hot property. And I thought, well, there'd be a great arm for us, similar ways to kind of how Festival Republic is for Live Nation. Now it was almost yeah. like if we bring them in, we immediately got their festival expertise. They've got production, they've got marketing, they've got ticketing, everything. So that was, you know, at the time I was two or three people in my team. So it was great. Uh, so we did the deal with them and we kind of never looked back from there really. From then on, we, yeah, we procured, I think it was about 14 festivals. Um, so we had everything from, uh, some of them we owned outright. Most of them we had large shares in, some of them we had small shares in, but every festival from Boardmasters to Victorious, SW4, Haida in Croatia, Snow Bombing, Truck, Kendall, why not Lost Village, which is a, an amazing festival that Andy, George, and JMO run? Uh, Field Day, the Rewind brand. You know, we were straight away. Suddenly, we'd gone from within, you know, opening to a year and a half. We were selling nearly a million tickets a year across those festivals in the touring business. And you know, we were a big operation who were suddenly taking on, you know, the the top two, three promoters in the UK. And you know, we were punching above our weight at the time. And you know, suddenly we had to pull in, you know, full kind of infrastructure with production, 
so that we could amortize costs and, you know, artist booking teams, you know, you had all these different bookers and they're not used to working with different people before. So I had to very much try and work with them, some more comfortable than others about sharing information. But that was part and parcel of the learning process for me was, you know, and that's something I learned a lot was dealing with a lot of different personalities and characters. And mm. some of them are really close friends still. And, you know, those, those guys that, you know, like yourself, people that have created something from nothing uh, is, you know, is amazing uh, and it's inspiring. And that's something that inspires me today is, is just watching entrepreneurs, you know, from an idea to 20,000 people in the field. It's incredible. Yeah. Best feeling ever. It, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's something that, yeah, we strive to do every day. And, you know, that whole time at Global was amazing. Uh, you know, we were able to work with the radio brands uh, as well. Uh, and it was, yeah, it was an incredible sort of three and a, well, just under three years, uh, yeah, yeah. three years there. So, you know. So to break that down, Global essentially invested or bought 14 festivals in one year. Over a course of a year, a year and a half. Yeah. Wow. That's so it was powerful. a pretty big trajectory. Yeah. So we, we were, we were, you know, suddenly going from selling a small number of tickets and the, to, to selling, yeah, I think we worked out it was close to a million tickets with the touring and the festivals, which is a, which is a big business. Yeah. Um, and you know, we had you know the guys who run Boardmasters. You know, it's an incredible event. You know, SW4, those guys, and you know, all of them great events, well run. You know, and seeing festivals now like Lost Village at the time was five thousand cow. I think they're up to fifteen now. Yeah, and right. the attention to detail that they do there is incredible. I'd actually say. Although it's on obviously a much smaller scale, Lost Village is probably the closest experience to Coachella, I think. Really? Wow, that's... In terms of that 18 to 22 kind of Instagram audience, you know, yeah. uh, who are massively into their music, it's very kind of techno-orientated. You've got to know your music, but you yeah. go there for a good time and the vibe, you know, you can sit and have, you know, a Michelin star buffet followed by a spa then go and rave in the woods. Yeah. amongst like you know a, a plane that's amongst trees and stuff it's amazing it really is and credit to those guys have created sounds my cup of tea that sam it is it is <laughs> same with snow bombing actually snow bombing yeah. is a personal favorite i've had some great times there and you know it's a, a, a unique experience to ski during yeah. the day party during the day and night it's great really good which 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 you say your top three were of all of those you've got sw4 you've got boardmasters you've got lost village you got festival number six. I know festival number six isn't around anymore. Um, which would you say out of all of those sort of global brands, the festival brands were your top three? I would say not including where I'm at now, because I've got two or three of my all time favorites there. Uh, I would say of, of the global area, global era, I would say uh, Lost Village definitely is up there. Victorious, I thought is a great event. I think that what they've done there within a short space of time, you know, selling, you know, 120,000 tickets to 150, I think, well, yeah, it was just bonkers, the volume in there. And it's a really well-run site. I, I would have put in that time, Victorious up there. Victorious in, um, in Portsmouth? Yeah, that one. And Lost Village up in Lincolnshire? Yeah. Okay. And I would say the, uh, I've got to say, snow bombing. Because that was the first festival deal we did, uh, and I've got some incredible memories there. And it's such a challenging site to run. You know the production elements to it. You've got 
you know, the artists getting to and from the site, two different airports, um, you know, ev- everything about it is incredible. How does, how does, how does a festival work in the, in the snow in terms of, obviously you haven't got big dance, uh, big top dance tents and you haven't got different festival arenas. Is it done on, uh, in nightclubs or in bars or is it just one big outdoor stage? They basically take over every venue. So they take over the whole resort of Marfin, every bed. So when you go to Snowbomb and you can buy just a hotel room, you can buy just a ski pass or you can buy everything, you know, from your flight to, you know, your festival pass to everything. So they've got kind of two main areas. One is like an underground tennis club, which holds about 3,000. That's where all the late night stuff till 5 a.m. goes. So that's where a lot of the... Uh, yeah, big DJs, Fatboy Slim and all that kind of stuff goes in there. I think Storms even played it. Um, and then they've got an outdoor stage, which they do two or three times during the week. That's in the forest stage. That's where like your prodigy plays, Liam Gallagher, Kasabian, those kind of artists. And they've got this incredible um, igloo at the top uh, of the mountain. And you, you pay extra. It's like an add-on pass. And I think it's like 50 tickets or something like that. And it's one gondola that goes up and only one that goes down. So once you're up there, that's it. Yeah. Uh, and they, they get like, they had Skrillex up there cause he was playing the main room, but they got an agreement to him to pay. You had like, and it's like 50 people in an igloo sweating with Love Skrillex, it. Fatboy Slim, <laughs> MK to Love it. Yeah. All sorts. It was pretty special actually. Uh, and you get the sunset up there and then they, they use, you know, a lot of the European ski resorts have like this sort of, place you stop for a beer or a hot chocolate and all that sort of stuff. They put the DJs on the top of the buildings on the balconies. So people have a kind of little party up there. They have early morning sessions with Mr. Motivator to stretch and all that sort of stuff. It's really, (laughs) really well curated. And they do a a newspaper every morning, a snow bombing newspaper with all the, the pictures and gossip from the night before and stuff. It's really good. If you're enjoying this episode, You can subscribe to The Eventful Entrepreneur now on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So what was the movements from there then? So you've you've been there three years. You've 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 taken hold of 14 festivals, you've you've done deals with the promoters, you're selling tickets. What was the what was the next move and why? I think um at the time I started really getting into the touring side of the business. So I was really enjoying, you know, we were being at the time a, a kind of smaller fish in a bigger pond, although Global such a big company, we were still, we were able to get in like your Pet Shop Boys Arena tours and developing the new acts at the time, like Galantis and people like that into Brixton Academy acts. And that was really starting to hit home with me, that development side of the business. Um, and there was obviously a focus then um, from Global. They were kind of, uh, kind of restructuring a lot of the entertainment business. And they wanted to focus a lot on festivals. Uh, and that's something I loved, but I was also proud of the touring business. Um, and, you know, Global, it was a really difficult decision because Global had backed us big time. You know, I mean, they were, you know, out there aggressively with us and we were, you know, acquiring lots of great festivals. But, you know, when a company like Live Nation come knocking on your door, which is pretty by far the biggest touring festival promoter in the world, you know, I'd known them for a long time. I'd known the management team there for a long time. And, you know, conversations, one thing led to another. And, um, you know, there was an opportunity there for a really great role in London. And I thought, well, if I don't take this now, when am I going to take it moving forward? You know, you, you mentioned the likes of Melvin, Ben, and, you know, some of the greatest ever UK festival operators in that company. And it was like, mm. 
there's nowhere else to learn from. The godfather of festivals, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, um, <laughs> and you know, at the time Live Nation had just gone into business with Part Life Festival and those mm. guys. So, you know, Sasha, Sam Candell, Rich McGuinness, those guys are, you know, amazing operators um, from the club level to, to the major festival level. Yeah. Um, and you've got Rory, obviously, who does all the mama, uh, all the mama festivals. You know, again, someone I immensely respect. You know, one of my favourite festivals, probably top three festivals across all of them, Wilderness, I think it's a brilliant festival. That's an unbelievable festival. Great festival, attention yeah, to detail. Again, older, I would say that and Lost Village are the Coachella comparisons. I keep yeah, going back okay. to it, but Wilderness would probably be the closest for the adult audience to Coachella. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, as you've been, it's, it's a great festival. I try and go every year still. Mm. Me and my wife, it's our kind of uh, weekend away, yes. <laughs> uh, which is which is great. Um, you know, so you got all of them and, and Love Box and yeah, all these great festivals. So for me, it was it was a great opportunity, and and I went in there and um, I went I went in actually as kind of focusing actually more on the touring side there, which was president of the UK touring. Um, so working alongside you know promoters I'd look up to like Andy Copping who runs Download to Phil. Uh, Phil Bowdry and, and a whole load of great promoters there on the team. So, yeah, I've, obviously I'm still at Live Nation, but I had kind of two and a half great years in London. And I got brought into the booking team with John Giddings um, and, you know, Dennis and various other people for Isla White Festival, um, which I've been working on now. This would have been my third year, I think. Yeah, you know, we've had... The first two years, amazing success there, uh, down to the team. You know, it was so Live Nation. Live Nation bought Isla White about three years ago. Is that right? Yeah, before I joined, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they went into business, and John Giddings is obviously still involved, and you know the, the the face of it, and the front run, you know, the front man for it, and you know runs the show uh, with everybody. And you know, it's it's a great festival. Uh, I'm proud to work on it. It's one that I went to. Being from Bournemouth, it was the kind of festival I used to go to as a kid yeah. uh, with my mates in a minibus and get the ferry across or get the boat across. Um, yeah, so it's great. You know, in the first sort of three years, obviously, unfortunately, we couldn't go ahead, but we were a week away from selling out back at the start of the year before this all kicked off. So that would have been three sold out years in a row, which is amazing. Yeah. What was the capacity there, Sam? 50, around 50. 50. 50,000, yeah. Do you, think, do you think the capacity... Uh, do you think uh, best of all not being on the Isle of Wight made a big impact on Isle of Wight uh, festival numbers going up? I think it, it's it's always going to have an effect. Um, I mean, Rob, uh, Rob, and, and and that festival group is now actually part of Live Nation. Yeah, um, yeah. so we're all friends. Um, but I would yeah. I would say best of all was quite a different festival. I used to go to that as well. That was more young, sort of lost villagey type. Yeah. You know? um, it was, yeah, it was quite experiential, alternative, cool. Um, and it definitely had an impact, you know, having two big festivals on the island. But I've always seen Isle of Wight as a festival for everyone, all ages, all demographics, all genres. Um, you know, you're not going to get the coolest acts there, but you're going to, for me, you're going to get the best acts. You know, yeah. you kind of go through a playlist and it's it's quite mixed. You've got rock on there, you've got dance, you've got pop, you've got heritage retro all sorts of stuff so um i don't think it had a it had some effect on it but i think um i think people just really enjoyed going to a big mainstream festival for an affordable price you know yeah. i think price is really important you know you've got to 
you got to price these festivals right. There's so much choice out there. You got to price it right. You know. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah. So give me give me an example on that first year of Isle of Wight. It's under your it's under your it's under your remit. You're there on the Isle. In fact, but we were both there. In fact, if I remember rightly, that year. Um, what's the feeling that you get when you're at that festival? It's uh, so I work closely with John and his wife Caroline. So they're kind of like running everything day to day there, you know, with their production teams, the guys that have been there from the start. Um, and for me, I'm focused a lot on the artists who I've booked on the festival, making sure, and I, I spend a lot of time uh, running around on golf buggies, seeing the times of day, what artists worked, what artists didn't work, because you're not going to get every booking right. And you've got to learn each year what worked, why did it work? Why was the tent full for that genre and not for that genre at the same time? And so I, I focused a lot on, I do still focus a lot on the artist side for it because a festival like that is very artist driven. Um, so I'm just get up first thing in the day, you're checking your artists, everyone's got everything they need, checking how their sets go um, and trying to enjoy it at the same time. Yeah, 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 yeah. For that, save that bit for the evening. Give, me, give us a little bit of a lowdown on park life in Manchester. What's the capacity there? What sort of a festival is it and the feel? And It's a good question. I, uh, I've i not worked on it personally. I just know the guys obviously well that run it. I think it's around about, I mean, don't quote me, I think it's about 80,000 a day and it might even be more. Uh, it's a kind of student crowd, kind of dance, hip hop uh, led, um, you know, with pops and pop thrown in there as well multi-stages, main stage, big dance arena, you know, your kind of Carl Cox's and all of that world's there, Hannah Wants, but then you've got Dua Lipa, you've got Stormzy. Mm. It's kind of a real mixture of kind of really cool, cool acts. Um, and yeah, no, it's, it's a really well-run festival. It's got its challenges with that demographic. Yeah. Um, you know, they've got to manage things, but they, they manage it incredibly well. Um, so yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good festival. It's, it's one of those festivals where if I was organizing it, your levels of adrenaline are at an all time high because of your responsibility to the audience. Yeah. You know, I always look at whether I've got a 500 capacity show or a 50,000 capacity show. I look at those as, you know, uh, really, uh, you know, the crowd, I want them to have a great time from the moment they come in. You know, if it's mm. a young person, it's someone's child, you know, are they getting mm. the welfare they need, you know? Are they okay? Uh, and it's a it's a big burden to take on your shoulders, but I feel it's one that you have to as an event organizer. You've got to care for everybody as much as you can. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do that. So yeah, for those guys, I know it's same with Reading and Leeds, which as a music fan for me is like is the music festival. If you want to just go and listen to the best bands around, Reading and Leeds is the festival. A great experience, multi-genre. It's kind of like a rite of passage festival. You know, you you're 16 to 18 a lot of the audience, you're leaving school, college, that's what you that's go right. to. Yeah, yeah. And it's got all the hottest acts in the country, in the world. Yeah. You know, from your Post Malone's to your Food Fighters to Stormzy, Jay Huss, Dave, and, you know, it's, it is, you know, it is the festival. Yeah. Um, for me, in terms of like, if you want to go for just pure music, that for mm. me is, the, is, a, is, a, is just a great, and John Mack's been booking that for years and just, he does a brilliant job, brilliant job. Yeah. I found it amazing, in fact, it's um, the way that, uh, the music artists and musicians are earning so much money these days on live events, live gigs, festivals, and it's completely changed how it used to be where the artists and musicians would be selling CDs and then using the festivals as promo, really. 
And that's completely turned around now where there's no one's earning money on CDs. Obviously, there's none of that. And essentially now they're earning all their money doing live gigs and festivals around the world, which fair play to them. And it's it, it's, the tables have turned a little bit in the, over the last sort of couple of months where I've seen that, you know, it's gone from as a promoter paying 50% of a DJ maybe save his 20 grand or an act or a hundred grand, whatever it may be, you pay 50% when you book him and then you pay 50% a month before your festival. Where now I've seen that Live Nation have said, well, hold on a minute, we'll pay 10% before the festival and pay you 90% after the festival. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I don't know because obviously I'm not in the UK now. I don't know the ins and outs of the deals uh, in terms of uh, deposits. But I mean, in this, in the kind of times we're in at the moment, you know, we as a promoter, we've got to we've got to run a business. We're the ones that take the risk. You know, we're the we're the risk takers out of all this. You know, it's our mm. our money that's been put on the table. We've got to sell the tickets, um, and you know, you, you've got to kind of protect your assets where you can. Um, and I think uh, you know, from the artist side, touching on what you said before, it was always the record that drove everything. Obviously, it mm. still does because you need you need big songs, great albums to sell mm. tickets and be a value to festivals, but. I think that, you know, I know people who work at record companies and in their planning meetings, it's like, what festivals are you playing? What's your live plot for next year? And in terms of income, that's where most of their income, unless you're a big artist that gets big sponsorship deals, you know, they're earning more money through streaming now, but live is, is where the money is for them. Yeah. So festivals is a key part in that because it's, it's good paying fees. Yeah. Um, the touring business is high for them as well. Um, but you know, so obviously this new structure and deposits and stuff is going to have an impact, but you know, the one thing in, in this industry is, is we're, we're all in it together, you know, in these times. So everybody's got to give on something. Everybody's got to work together because, you know, if the festivals can't operate properly, then the artists don't have a festival to play in. Yeah. So, you know, everybody from the agents, the artists to the label, everybody's got to work together for us to make this, to get through this because it's, it's. You know, not 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 that we want to go into the Corona times too much. I try and uh, not talk about it too much. No, but, don't talk know, about um, Corona. <laughs> no, but it's you know, th th there's a whole mentality, especially with artists now, where you know what we're seeing with all the the great people, as you know, that put on these festivals and these events that are, have no work, and you know, everybody know, okay, well, this isn't normal now, so we need to take a step back. How do we make this sustainable for everybody? You know, so deposits need to change, cash flow, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, it's it's not the normal right now. So we have to adapt, yeah. you know. I totally agree, mate. Totally agree. And there's also the radius clause, which I always find quite weird that, that bands and artists or DJs can put a radio or the festivals can put a, a radius clause on things to say, well, you're playing at my festival. I don't want you playing at that festival within 100 miles and within three months either side of my festival. It's, it's, quite, it's quite tough on the artists, I think, sometimes, not being able to take a couple of gigs to earn money just because the promoter's protecting his own gig, his own festival? I think I'm quite, yeah, I've got quite a strong opinion on that because a lot of these artists get paid a lot of money. Uh, and if we're going to pay those, the reason why we're paying those artists a lot of money is to get the exclusivity. Because if they start paying a whole bunch of shows, then it devalues your brand, you're going to sell yeah. less tickets and therefore you can't pay for them at your festival. Yeah. So you've got to find that balance. I've always worked with other festivals where possible. Uh, have sensible conversations, you know, try not to be stupid about it. But ultimately, if you're in a position where you're having to pay a lot of money for an act, even if they're small or big, you've got to, for that customer who's paying a lot of money for a festival ticket, you want them to feel like, wow, 
not that you can go and see them at 10 other places down the road. So you've just got to strike that balance uh, with, you know, festivals that are in the same lane as you, how far are they from you? Would your customer maybe go to them instead? Yeah. So you, you've got to, yeah, you've got to find that balance. Mm, I agree, mate. Totally agree. What's your, what would you say is the, the biggest buzz that you get from putting on events and being involved in events? I think really it's obviously when you're at the festival itself. Um, I mean, that moment you create a concept or an idea and those initial meetings, where a lot of people say, ah, you're stupid. You know, it's not an idea. I remember I, I had this, this Alton Towers live brand that we created, which was this like, if you remember, do you remember T4 on the beach, which was yeah, yeah, all the yeah, smash yeah. hits poll winners party. It was like touring these pop acts. And I was like, well, yeah. there isn't really anything in the UK at the moment that caters to pop like that, like it used to. And pop never dies. Um, so we created this Alton Towers. And then from that, I obviously joined uh, AEG at the time. And I said, well, look, how can we expand this? How can we create a brand? So I said, well, let's call it UK Live. And we'll have, we'd found locations that we thought it could work. So one was the Stadium of Light in Sunderland. One was Chantry Park in Ipswich. So we did North East Live in Sunderland, East Coast Live in Ipswich, and South West Live in Western Supermare, the old T4 on the beach site, yeah. and Alton Towers. So we kind of had South, East, North, and Central. Had pretty much everything covered. Um, and we'd created that and ran that for sort of two, three years and it was really successful. We were between 25,000 and 30,000 tickets. And I remember being at Sunderland, um, the stadium of light with 30,000 people there. And it was just watching all of the, the moment that you get on your radio doors and you see everybody coming in the ice on stage and, and just seeing the kids and the parents having just the best time. A lot of them, yeah. their first festival experience. Yeah. That for me was like, you know, seeing festivals and everyone going crazy is, is a real buzz but that particular one was seeing like kids first experience at live music that always stuck with me you know on the dad's shoulders or the mum's shoulders yeah. you know yeah. singing along to little mix or you know whoever it was at the time was was a great feeling and all walking away and I always I'm always there from the doors when they open the doors I want to see people coming in I want to get their energy what they're most excited to see who are they going to see first where are they rushing to what's their priorities food yeah. drink go and see the band to get at the front. And then when they leave, whether it's a camping press or not, I want to, I kind of want to be in the background and just get people's vibe. What, what weren't they happy with? What were they happy with? You know, was it too big a queues for the toilet? Was the beer too expensive? Was, you know, was the music not good? Was the sound crap? You know, what, what, excuse me, what, what was it? You know, and I think yeah. it's, it's important as a festival, part of a festival team that you really, uh, you know, you, you understand what your audience wants. And yeah. it's not possible to tick every box, but you know, if you can get as much information from you can, and you, there's no better way of doing that than actually getting the experience from them firsthand. 100%. Mate, that buzz you get when people are queuing up and coming into your festival cannot be beaten. Cannot be beaten. And that's, that's what pulls us through these crazy times now because you know yeah. it's coming back. Music will come yeah. back stronger than ever. And that feeling for people, everybody misses it just as much as us. So I think as soon as we can turn the key and open those doors and venues and festivals. It's, it's going to be great for everybody. Um, you know, and it's, it just shows what a positive impact, you know, festivals and music has on people's lives. You know, people miss Huge it. Huge impact. I think, I think people are going to be absolutely chomping to get back to festivals summer 2021. I genuinely think people are going to be chomping. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, we're, we're, Isla White is doing very well and that should give everybody confidence that, you know, we're in everything selling great. 
Yeah. You know, all the stadium shows, your Guns N' Roses, your Lady Gaga, all of that stuff. You know, people yeah. want music. So everybody should gain confidence that, you know, somewhere or another we will be back. And uh, that, that buzz for all of us is great. And I think these sorts of things, you know, you've got to try and take positives. It kind of resets the market a little bit. You know, mm. gives you time to think. How can you do things better? What were we missing? Things that you didn't have time to do because you're just in that festival rush. It's like, okay, the festival's happening and booking's becoming earlier and earlier now. You know, you yeah. finish the festival, then you'd start booking yeah. packs. Now it happens, you're booking the next year's lineup before you've even done your festival. Yeah. So you're kind of, you know, you're constantly catching your tail and running around trying to find, you know, the headliners for next year. So now at least it kind of gives you time to reset. Mate, I've really thoroughly enjoyed this, Sam. I think I think uh, the audience are going to really love this this episode, and um, you're doing a cracking job, mate. And it's uh, I think you've got a seriously big career ahead of you. You've completed a lot already, but I think you've got some even bigger stuff to uh, jump onto next. But mate, thoroughly enjoyed it. You're a gentleman. Thank you. And Thank I'll you. Um, I'll speak to you soon. Speak to you soon. Take care, Good man. Cheers, Sam. Bye. Take it easy, mate. Thanks for listening to the Eventful Entrepreneur. Join the conversation today. Review and subscribe for free on iTunes now.